0: Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord.
1: What a glorious passage we have before us today. We're going to look at first David's description of the Lord as his shepherd. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, or even if you haven't been a Christian, Psalm 23 is probably one of the more popular psalms uh, in, the, in the Christian faith. It is an extremely beautiful psalm. and We're going to look at how this psalm tells us something about the shepherd who David calls the Lord. And that word, the Lord, means Yahweh. It is God's name. And so we're going to see how God is the shepherd of David. But we're actually only going to look at the first two verses, and then we're going to move to John and his gospel. We're going to look at Christ as the one who is the true shepherd and how Christ is able to speak his voice to his flock. After looking at Christ as the shepherd, we're then going to follow the text to where Jesus then says, I am the door. And then wonderfully, he moves again back to, I am the good shepherd. And so we're going to be moving through the text, progressing along, and then after examining John's gospel, then we're going to go back to to David's psalm and continue. So I know that we read the psalm first, and then we read John, but we're actually going to examine the psalm for just a minute, Then we're going to move to John's gospel, and then we're going to go back and look at Psalm 23 in the light of what Jesus just finished saying. So we're going to look at this psalm, and uh, David's psalm is actually a song of refuge. It's a song that's given in the state of emotional turmoil, and it's a song that commends the grace of God to us in turning to the Lord as a our shepherd, and so David, what he says about Yahweh is extremely beautiful and uh, applicable to us. the The key insight to this psalm is that David himself is a shepherd. David was a shepherd of a flock before he was anointed as king, and interestingly, at this place in David's life, we're not given extreme precision of when he wrote this psalm, but it's very likely that David wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from Saul, when he had been anointed as king but was not yet installed as king, and so David writes this psalm in a place of terror and speaks about God's mercy and grace in shepherding his soul. We're going to see that David is not just using this metaphor as some elaborate picture that's contrived, but actually the real shepherd is Yahweh and David is the true sheep. So we're going to look at this Uh, in the first verse he says the Lord is my shepherd the reason the word Lord is capitalized is because that's a translation of Yahweh's name so in the Hebrew it would be YHWH which would be Yahweh it would be or Jehovah that that is the name that God gave when he revealed himself to his people and so David is saying even though I'm supposed to be the king even though I'm supposed to be the shepherd of Israel I need a shepherd And my shepherd isn't another man, it's Yahweh himself. And so David is explaining in this psalm, he's commending the grace of God in uh, shepherding his soul. Verse two, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I want you to think about green pastures for a second. Have you ever laid down in grass that was bad grass? You know, it it has the tendency to be able to uh, cut and and tear your skin and, and such. Green pastures, pastures that are truly wonderful and green, are pastures that don't just feed you. They provide a place to rest. You see, sheep are not constantly eating when they're out in the field. They take time, they sit down, they look for shade. And these I, this idea of still waters is quite important as well. If a, if waters are too rough, they cannot be drunk from, right? Have you ever tried to drink from a stream? I don't recommend drinking from a stream in town. <laughs> I, I I drank from a stream one time in Yellow Springs and I was fine. But the the interesting aspect of this stream is it had to be flowing. If a stream is stagnant at all, if it's not flowing, it will become, you know, impure, it will be contaminated. And yet at the same time, if it is flowing too fast, it will be an absolute terror to you. Sheep can swim. Sheep cannot swim well. And so if this is nothing but still water that's good to drink and safe to drink, then if it's not that, or if it's too rough, if it's too fast, then this would be a terror to David. It would not be something that is nourishing and providing him uh, life. These still waters are life-giving. So everything in this psalm so far, it has to do with the nature of David being a sheep. But interestingly, David's not a sheep. He's a man. And so how do we understand what David is saying? The Lord is my shepherd, but I'm a man. And interestingly, this is where the psalm stops its illusions. David then begins to move to other phrases of speech, parts of speech, that have nothing to do with sheep. And we're going to see why he does that when we come back to Psalm 23. But I just want you to see at the, at the very onset from our reading today, Yahweh is the one who is the shepherd. And then Jesus is about to say something that is beautiful and sweet. So in Jesus' parable, the imagery always focuses on the shepherd. There are secondary characters. There are thieves. There are robbers. There's a gatekeeper. There's the sheep themselves. There's the hired hand or the watchling. But always the primary focus is the shepherd. Jesus identifies at the very beginning those who are false shepherds, and if you remember the prophecy of Jeremiah and Isaiah, God has a controversy with the spiritual leaders of Israel saying that they are false shepherds who have neglected my flock, and because they have not attended to my flock, I will now come and attend to them. And so God is judging the shepherds of Israel at this time, and Jesus refers to them directly. Why does he do this? Well, it's actually the case that John 10, even though we started at John 10:1, it's a pure continuation from John chapter nine. And in John chapter nine, Jesus gave a demonstration of his glory and power. Jesus revealed his power over created things by healing a man born blind. And in the history of Israel, this was extremely unique. This had never been done before. Elijah had raised a boy from the dead, and Christ had also raised people from the dead, but no one before the, throughout the history of the world as John 9 tells us had ever healed a man born blind. So what is Jesus doing at this point? Well, after the healing of the man born blind, the Pharisees begin to accuse Jesus and the man of sin because he did these things on the Sabbath and he did them outside their sphere of authority. And so over and over again, the Pharisees question this healed man, this this formerly blind, now seeing man, about who Christ is. And over and over again, he testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. He came from God. And they continue to say, we don't know where he came from. And so the point of this passage is Jesus is speaking into this very context of their blindness as the false shepherds, right? What is What does the Bible say about those who are blind? If the blind lead the blind? They both fall into the pit. Jesus is saying, you are blind shepherds. You're blind guides. Jesus does this for one precise reason, not to malign the Pharisees. That's not his intended goal, although that is an outcome. His intended goal is to protect the flock. Jesus, as the good shepherd, loves the flock and desires that they would be able to be, be to be to be in his flock, find rest under his leadership, and not be led astray. Jesus is doing this out of love for the flock, and so he identifies false shepherds. Right before this parable, as I mentioned, he heals a blind man, and this causes the confrontation, which is the context for verse one. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. The point is this, that Jesus is saying there is one way by which leaders of the flock may come to take care of the flock, and it is if they go through the door. Now, this door, he does not precisely identify, although you could say that it would be the father, or you could say that it might be through the covenant, uh, you know, continuation of the house of Israel. The point is this, That Jesus is saying something about his qualification. He has the right to go through the door. Jesus absolutely is not like the thieves or the robbers. He has the right and authority. Indeed, the flock was made for him. That is the whole point that the flock exists is because the father wants to give to the son a people. So Jesus is the true shepherd and he calls them by name. You see, at this point, Jesus is using a parable and he's describing thieves and robbers who try to come in and malign the flock or steal the flock versus himself who comes in through the door, through his father's approval as the true continuation of all the prophets and everything that they had shared with the people of Israel. And yet at this point, the, the flock was being abused the flock was being terrorized by these wrong shepherds and so Jesus says in this parable but he the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep to him the gatekeeper opens the sheep hear his voice and he calls his sheep by name i want to i want to emphasize this last portion that jesus is the shepherd who calls his sheep by name he calls his sheep not just by name in a general sense you're my sheep come on little sheep what he does is he calls his sheep by name the the passage means very clearly that he knows who his sheep are how can you call someone by name if you don't know them And so Jesus is not a stranger to the flock. He has perfect knowledge of his flock and their condition at all times. What was the prophecy given to the house of Israel in Jeremiah? I I call you by name. That's exactly what Jesus is drawing on in this passage. He knows his sheep by name and he calls them by name. And the reason they obey is he calls them by name and leads them out. The sheep hear his voice. The sheep aren't hearing just a regular sound, they're hearing him say his name. Have you ever, when you were growing up, I'm sure this happened to you, if you had parents who ever disciplined you, there's a, there's a way that your name is spoken to get your attention? If, you, if your middle name, in, in English, if your middle name is ever added, I've already done this, and Susan hasn't even been doing anything dramatically wrong. Uh, I've already said Susan Abigail right Susan Abigail because at that point I'm trying to communicate to her there's something very important here that's not for babies you can't touch the outlet Susan Abigail but see what Jesus is saying here it's not like just someone saying your name if you meet someone you know they say hey my name's Jim you respond hey Jim that's it's nice to meet you That way of just saying the name is not what Jesus intends at all. Jesus is not saying the name of his sheep in a scornful sense. He's not saying their middle name. He's calling them by name in order that they would identify him. There's another way that your name is used by your parents, right? It's the other way that your name is used is in a tender fatherly or motherly or affectionate way. There's, there's a way that your spouse says your name. And the way that they say your name is totally different than the way anyone else uses your name. Why? Because the way that they say it has context. It has relationship. It has knowledge behind it. Jesus knows you by name and he calls you by name. He doesn't call you in a sense to scorn. He doesn't call his sheep out Uh, In anger, he calls his sheep in tender and loving affection. And as they pass by him, as they move by him, he watches them one by one, individually, all together. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Right? It's this idea about the stranger's voice they don't recognize. They recognize the Lord's authority because they know his voice and he speaks in a way that calls them to himself. What Jesus is explaining here is, these are the marks of the good shepherd. This is the mark of the God who comes to bring out his flock. I love this part, the, the first part of this verse. If you've ever read the Bible and you've been wondering, why do you know the book of Numbers, they, they chronicle and count each person in the house of Israel? Why do they do that? Why does the Bible waste so much time telling you w- which tribe had X number of men for fighting and how many there the reason is is because none of them get lost jesus perfectly counts his people individually and as a group it says when he has brought out all of his own not one of them is supposed to be left in the sheepfold that day they're all supposed to come out and find food each day day by day The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Having ensured that none are missing, Jesus goes first. Look at this very clearly. Jesus says that he goes before them. The idea is this, that the shepherd is a forward guard for the flock. After he, standing at the door, is ensuring one by one they're leaving the fold to go find pasture for that day, he then goes to the front and starts leading them where he wants to take them. And this has to be understood spiritually speaking, that Jesus is the vanguard or the forward guard for his people. That Jesus, as the mediator and high priest of our confession, he goes and tastes of death before his people do. The point is this, that Jesus calls his disciples, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Some of them will abuse you, some of them will kill you. The point is this, that Jesus is not leading his people anywhere he was not willing to go himself some of you are called to great things in god some of you are called to become missionaries. some of you are called to become pastors you are called as christians to suffer like christ take courage he never calls you to something he wasn't willing to go and experience himself this is i think what the point of what jesus is saying the shepherd goes before them and he places himself in between the danger and the flock. Jesus is going to say this again later on in the passage. Christ leads not just by a simple general sense of direction, but by his voice. And by his voice, I don't mean the subjective sense of the spirit. I mean his voice as recorded in the scriptures, not giving particular direction about the name of the person you'll marry in five years or the sort of job that you'll have, or the industry that you should move to, those are few and far between in the Christian life. The general sense of being a sheep is that you should be listening to the voice of the shepherd. Where is the voice of the shepherd found? It's found in the scriptures. It's found day by day as you are trying to find food because the shepherd wants to feed you day by day the people at this point do not understand the imagery at all. And so Jesus just continues using it. I love this part because they don't understand the imagery. It says, John tells us that the people did not understand this uh, manner of speech. And then Jesus just continues to use it. Why? Because continued exposure to the word of God produces life. I think that's what Jesus is doing. He, he continues to use it because there are some in the crowd who are hearing his teaching who really are understanding. And he's confident that his word is going to bear fruit. So Jesus moves from the imagery of him being the good shepherd. And now he switches to saying he is the door. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. False messiahs who attempted to lead the people away were rejected by the sheep. At this point in the history of Israel in the first century, uh, before Christ arrived, there had arisen a large number of false prophets and false messiahs claiming to be the Christ. They had claimed to be that one who was going to finally deal with the Romans and establish the kingdom of God in fullness. And over and over again, all of these false messiahs, false shepherds drew people away from the flock. For their own purposes. But what Jesus is saying is that none of the people who followed the false shepherd's voice, none of those were in my flock at all. Christ's true sheep can never be deceived because he protects them. How does he protect them? He protects them by his word, he protects them by his voice. He gives them wisdom and direction through his scriptures that they would be saved, that they would be thriving as sheep. We're going to see what David says about that in just a few minutes. Christ himself, therefore, is the only way by which people may enter the sheepfold. You see, Jesus himself says that I'm the shepherd who goes in through the door, and then he changes the imagery and says, not only that, I'm the door. You can't get into the sheepfold unless you go through me. That's going to be really important in a few minutes as we're going to see. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and will go out and will find pasture. The idea is this that there is a fence around the sheepfold. That's what the word sheepfold means. It's not the flock. The flock and sheepfold are slightly different terms. The sheep fold is the area that protects the flock. Why? Because flock can run away, they can get in trouble. They can get into places they shouldn't get into. But not only that, wolves can come in. And so the, the the fence provides protection for the sheep. If you're ever driving out to Beaver Creek, there's a little fence right when you get to, I believe that's uh, Burkhart or Kemp and Grange Hall. There's a fence and there are sheep there. And the reason why there's a fence, because there's a road. The fence protects those sheep from wandering. It's not just that people are trying to get in, it's that the sheep accidentally get out. They, they really do not know any better. It's, sometimes you will have malicious sheep. Sometimes you will have sheep that are mischievous. But really, for the most part, sheep wander. Uh-huh. And the reason they don't wander is because there's a fence, because there's a fence holder, there's a doorkeeper, there's a gatekeeper. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. How many times have you heard this quoted outside the context of this passage? This is a great verse, but in the context, he's describing those who are trying to sneak into the sheepfold versus those who are going through the door and who the door is and what he's doing as the door. We're going to see that in just a minute. But what Christ is saying is that he comes, the reason he comes is that they may have life, and he does it by allowing them. He becomes the door. What do doors do in the natural? They, they allow you to gain entry to somewhere, right? The fence protects the flock, and doors allow access. Checked, guarded, managed access in and out of the flock. That's the imagery of what Jesus is doing. See, the problem is when you take these symbols or metaphors and you just short circuit them. Oh, Jesus is the door. Okay, so when I see door, I just read Jesus. The point is that Jesus is trying to say something about his role as the door. By saying that his sheep go in and out, Jesus is not teaching that his sheep should wander away from the flock and come back. He's not teaching that it's okay for you as a sheep to fall away and repent, to be revived and to, fall, and to slip back. He's not saying that going in and out is a good thing or a bad thing. This is actually the imagery of what daily life is supposed to be as a sheep. Every single day, the sheep have to leave the fold. They have to go and find pasture. They have to eat. And then they have to come every single night because the wolves come out at night. The wolves, the coyotes, the the foxes, those who would malign the flock, who try to snatch away the sheep for their own devices to devour them, those come out in the darkness. And so the sheep have to... Return to the fold The thief desires to kill And Christ's mission is to bestow life Those two things are diametrically opposed They're opposed to each other They want to kill the sheep Christ wants the sheep to live How will the sheep live? We'll see that in a minute The one who prevents the thieves From gaining entry is the door himself He puts himself Between the harm that would come to the flock And the flock itself By saying, uh, excuse me, again, Jesus modifies the metaphor. He said at the beginning, he gave a parable about the shepherd. He then moved to him being the door. And now he's going to return again to that shepherd just to repeat and to expand the imagery more and more. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The point is this, that shepherds will die for the sheep. The good shepherd will prevent the thieves from coming in. Jesus is going to lay down his life for the sheep. Just as Christ goes before the sheep, remember when it says he, the shepherd goes before them? What happens when you're on a journey through fields, through, through places unknown, is that you arrive at danger. In any sufficiently large flock, you can't steer the flock somewhere else. You can't turn it around. If you happen upon a wolf in the journey, you have to deal with the wolf. And this is where David's background, again, turning just briefly to that psalm, is quite important because David actually had to kill animals in order for his sheep to be protected. We're told in the Bible that he has killed a lion. Hey, can you imagine this as a human being? I, I would hate this idea if I, was, if I didn't know how to do this. The idea and prospect of having to put yourself between really tasty lambs and a really ferocious king of the jungle, and to kill the king of the jungle without a gun. Can you imagine that? That, that is a ridiculous prospect. That is a crazy and, and unthinkable idea that he would put himself between the bear and the fold, between the lion and the sheep. And yet this is exactly what David Is saying. He's saying that the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who protects me from the wolves, the lions, the bears. Again, after naming and identifying him as the true shepherd, Jesus highlights his mission and goal. I love this part of John 10 because what he's doing is he's actually setting up a central point in his teaching. He's saying by verse 15 and verse 17 he's enclosing verse 16 in the middle. We've talked about this before. It's kind of like a hamburger. You have a bun on the top and you have a bun on the bottom, and where's the best part of the hamburger? It's in the middle with the with the meat. What Jesus does is he says something about the Father and how he's going to lay his life down. That's the top bun. The bottom bun, again, is the Father loves me, right? The Father knows me, the Father loves me, and I'm going to lay my life down. Why does he do that? It's so that he would focus our attention. It's so that he would cause us to consider what is being enveloped or being encapsulated at this point in the text. Verse 15, the Father knows him because he lays down his life. Verse 17, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. And verse 16, I think, is the core of what Jesus is trying to say. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. At this point in the life of Israel, the Israelites prided themselves that they were the chosen people of God, And they began to disdain the Gentile nations around them. They considered themselves to be the lofty chosen ones. That is, that God or Yahweh loves Israel because Israel obeys God's law. But actually, when you go and read the law, God told Israel directly, it is not because you are mighty or because of any particular beauty in you that I've chose you, but I have loved you because I decided to love you. That is what God tells his people as he initially chooses the house of Israel. And at this point in the nation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, probably even most of the people of the day considered Israel and membership in Israel as being the chief mark of who is in and who is out. And so Jesus is at this point saying that, guess what? There are more people who need to be brought into this flock. That's the entire thrust of John's gospel. When we get to John 12, everything hinges on the fact that some Greek people start to come and look for Jesus. At that point Jesus says, "Now is the hour of my glorification." What's the point of verse 16? He says, I have other sheep to bring in, the Gentile nations, those who are away from the covenant. They're going to be brought in and they're going to hear my voice. They're going to hear my word and they will become one flock, one fold, one shepherd. That is what Jesus Christ is doing. He is uniting these terribly egregious sheep and unclean sheep together. The, the, the mean sheep and the unclean sheep are going to be brought in by the act of the shepherd. What is the act of the shepherd? He's going to lay down his life for the sheep. The father's knowledge and love for Christ, therefore centers around the action of the giving of the shepherd's life. For what purpose? For the purpose of making a redeemed people. And those redeemed people are going to be cared for. They're going to listen to his voice. They're going to listen to his words. Christ's central aim, therefore, in this is that laying down his life will make a people for himself. Christ will do the great work of bringing about one new man composed of Jew and Gentile. In that cultural context, the Jew and Gentile divide was the most significant issue that he was speaking about. But brothers and sisters, this clearly continues today all racial harmony cannot be solved by any governmental action, by any humanistic reform or whatnot. It cannot be solved by getting rid of guns in the police department. It cannot be solved by better laws or changing prison sentences. All of those things need to be reformed. If we are to have any true racial reconciliation, it has to be because men come to know the shepherd who laid down his life for them. That is the only way that one flock can come together. It is not found in anything else. And I don't think that this is just an individual gospel context. He's saying one shepherd, one sheep, because of what reason? Because the shepherd is going to lay down his life. That's exactly what he's getting at. No longer are the Gentiles going to be strangers and aliens to God's people, but will be full members with all the benefits in Christ. Paul tells the Ephesian Christians, he says, at that time, you were strangers to the covenant. You were aliens to the commonwealth. You weren't citizens at all, but now through the action of Christ, he has made you to be one new man in Christ and that they have all the blessings, all the privileges that go along with covenant membership. You are a full-fledged member and part of the covenant if you are in Christ. You are the true Jews, as Paul says. You are the Israel of God, as Paul says in Galatians. You are the people that he's purchased for himself. So what are the benefits that Christ has purchased? They're told by David, and at this point, I want to move back to the psalm because Remember how David said some things that were kind of metaphors for sheep? The rest of the psalm has nothing to do with what sheep do. It has everything to do with men and people. Christ cares for your soul and your life. He provides correction, discipline, and guidance. Look at verse 3. This is probably one of the most precious promises in all of this psalm. He restores my soul. Do you know Christ as the one who restores your soul? Are you trying to restore your soul? Because if you're trying to restore your soul, then you're your shepherd, and you're not letting God be your shepherd. The one who restores your soul is God, he is the only one who is able to do it. David continues, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. That's a confidence in the midst of the storms of life, in the dark seasons, when we're feeling depressed, discouraged, what, what not, when we're approaching uh, tragic times in our lives, when we're potentially facing death, facing illness. These are the things that, that David is talking about. I'm going to go through the valley and yet Jesus is going to be with me. Verse four, your rod and your staff, they come for me. What does a rod and a staff of a shepherd do? The rod is not to beat the sheep. And so if you, are, are, you have this notion that in order to be redeemed by God, you have to really you know, atone for your sins, that's not what the rod is for. The rod is for guarding the sheep and where needed, moving a sheep where it's getting in danger. The point is that the shepherd doesn't attack the flock. And so, if you have wrong notions about God that are you know kind of the what what I would call a doctrine of evil, this notion that God is going to terrify me or God is going to uh, be really angry with me and make me pay for my sins if you' if that's your understanding of what God is or what Christianity is about. Brothers and sisters, that is a false gospel. That is is a lie from Satan. He wants to keep you from coming to the real shepherd. He wants to keep you from being restored, having your soul restored. He feeds us not on the ground, but at a table. Sheep don't eat at tables, right? Look at what he says. He says, he prepares a table for me. The Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, where did they get their food from? They got it from the ground. The manna would fall on the ground. They would go and collect it. Why? Because at that point, that was not the final food for them. Right? Jesus, when he he is replaying the, the feeding in the wilderness in John 6, he doesn't throw the bread and the loaves, the loaves and the fishes on the ground. He hands them to the people through the disciples. He breaks bread. He offers it to heaven. He hands it to the disciples and they minister the food one by one to the families who were sitting and gathered together what is the point of this it's the point is that the table is a place of honor where do you feed where do you feed slaves you feed them on the ground where did the the um the prodigal son where did he eat he ate out of the pig trough on the ground when when he got back home they threw a feast they weren't eating on the ground the point is this he's not david is not just being invited to table fellowship he's being invited as a guest Look at this, look at this uh, closely. You anoint my head with oil. A lot of times we think, okay, oil equals Holy Spirit. Okay, oil is the Holy Spirit. You anoint my head with the Holy Spirit. Boom. The problem with that is you don't understand what he's saying. He's saying in the context of this meal, the common custom of the day was those who were received as guests were anointed with oil on their head. In the Sunday school hour, there was this mention of people who ha- need their feet washed because they're walking around on dirt. The exact same thing happens at a at a banquet, at a guest, as a guest. If you're received at the meal, if you're welcome to the table, the guest, the host, uh, the guest receives from the host a mark. A, an approval, a stamp of approval, if you will. Yes, the imagery, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Yes, Christ wants to give you His Spirit. But the point is not just that you would get the Spirit, the point is that you would understand what the Spirit says about you. What does Paul say the mark of the Spirit is? It's the down payment, it's the surety, it's the stamp on a document that ratifies it. I have this stamp that I bought for myself because I like to know what, which books I own and which are other people, and it's one of those old-fashioned stamps if you've ever seen it, and you, um, it's a wax seal, and it, it's pressed between two things. Why do I do that? Because I want to know these are my books. I put my seal on my books because I really like the idea of, you know, if I'm going to give this away at the end of my life, I don't want somebody to just kind of know, not know where it comes from. I want them to know, hey, this was his book. He, you know, this was a gift. The point is I want to mark the books that are mine and the books that I have to return. The mark of the anointing of the Holy Spirit is given to those who are welcome at God's table. So my cup overflows. I have another, uh, they say you're never supposed to be the hero of your own images. So bear with me on this one. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? In the summer, if you've been out, we're getting to that point in the year, an overflowing cup is, is quite a problem if you are uh, going somewhere dangerous or in the dark, you're going to spill it, but I don't care. I really love putting ice all the way to the top and then putting water all the way to the top because I want it to be as full as it can be. Why? Because I'm really thirsty. What is David saying about an overflowing cup? He's going to be satisfied. David is going to be satisfied with the drink that God gives him. He's going to be satisfied with that which God wants to quench his thirst with. But although all these things are great, although he's welcomed to a table, although he's anointed with oil, although he's given direction and guidance and protection by the disciplines and corrections of the shepherd, although all of these wonderful things have happened for David, the absolute best is saved for last. He says, surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Most people read this and they think that's the end. That's the best promise. Brothers and sisters, if goodness and mercy follow you, but you don't have any communion with God, you have nothing at all. If you see this verse as just, well, God's promise, my circumstances will be good for me. That's not true. He hasn't promised that. That's not what he's saying. David is saying that goodness and mercy follow him as God defines goodness that's not even the best promise. The best promise is this last phrase, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to look at what David could possibly mean by this. How can David dwell in the house of the Lord? David at this point is anointed as king. He never is a priest. He's not a prophet. So the tabernacle or the house of the Lord was a place for priests to go in out, and out of. David is saying something about the house of the Lord that is not going to actually come to pass in the natural, in in a sense. He's saying something much greater than that. How can David dwell in the Lord's house? This greatest blessing, although all the other blessings were great, the greatest blessing seems too good to be true. It seems absolutely impossible. David's saying, I'm going to dwell in God's house, but David's not even allowed to enter God's house. If you look at the very next psalm, if you were reading Psalm 23 and then you got to Psalm 24, it says in the very next psalm, there are some conditions if you're even going to go up to God's house, let alone live in it. Verse Psalm 24, three and four, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? It's a question. The psalmist is saying a question and then he answers it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. If you ask David, David, do you have clean hands? He might say yes at a time, but does David have clean hands after this? You remember what he did with Bathsheba? What he did in murdering Uriah? Can David dwell in God's house? No, No, he can't even go up to it. What is the point? The point is that David is saying that this is going to come pa- to pass. Just like I'm going to have a table in the wilderness, just like my head's going to be anointed, just like my cup is going to overflow, I'm going to dwell in God's house. How does it happen? Well, I want to I ask this by looking at very briefly three really quick images from the scripture. At the end of the garden passage in Genesis 3 God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. Before he does that, he makes a covering for them by by killing an animal and taking the skins of that animal and provides clothing for them. He provides a covering to them. But what happens? Even though they have a covering, they can't be in the garden anymore where God's presence would come daily. They get kicked out of the garden. And what does God do? He establishes a flaming sword that turns every direction. To guard what? To guard to the way to the tree of life. The reason why is if Adam and Eve take from that tree of life without being cleansed, they would surely perish. They would be destroyed. Because of the sin of Israel, though God was their shepherd, the people could not enter the promised land until that entire generation died off. God gave them a good promise. He said, I'm going to bring you into the land. You're going to get to enter the land, and that land is going to be great. Before they got up there, they sent some spies to go in the land and spy it out and come back. What happened? The spies gave an evil report. The people believed that evil report saying that they would not be able to go in the land, that they would be overrun by the nations when God had promised, no, I will go before you, I will be your forward guard, and I will drive out the nations as you enter. And so they lied, those, those false witnesses lied to the rest of the people. Caleb is the only spy that was believed, right? Right. And Caleb says, no, let's go up. And they they don't listen to him. They don't listen at all. They listen to the lying witnesses. And so what does God do? He, he judges them. He gives them a correction. And he says, you cannot enter the land until all this generation passes away. Moses himself was not able to enter the land because of the sins of not just him, but, the, but also the people. The point is, in these two imageries... Adam and Eve can't get back into the garden because there's a flaming sword. The people cannot enter the promised land until that entire generation dies because of their sin. And then the third one is, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron only is able to come into the Holy of Holies if he offers up a son of the herd, a bull from the herd, right? The notion is that on the Day of Atonement, the the high priest, he's not just going to offer for the people, he has to first offer an offering for his own sins because he's not clean to enter even into the Holy of Holies. Amen. The point is this, that clearly if David enters God's house in sin, he will die. Remember when, when Moses came down and he, he established the Levites around the house of God? What did they have on them? They had a sword and they were supposed to kill anyone who was going to go up into the Holy of Holies, into the tabernacle, if they weren't supposed to. Why? Because that's what will happen to someone. Earlier in the Sunday school hour, we, there was the mention of that, that experience with David and the, the man who touched the Ark of the Covenant. Why, why did he die? Because God broke out in holy justice against that man's defiled sin. And this is the point, that if we are to come before God, we're going to die. If David is going to go into God's house, he's going to be killed. Even though he's anointed as king, he has no right to go into, into God's house. The point is, David, if he goes and gets killed, how can he dwell? By the way, you have to be able, alive to dwell somewhere. That's a, that's a key feature of, of dwelling so how does he do this christ himself became the door by which we might enter when he said i'm the door jesus is saying i'm going to go encounter those things which were placed at every single door what was the first imagery the garden remember this flaming sword the second imagery is that generation had to die to pay for their sins before the next generation could enter The third imagery was the son of the herd had to be offered up as an ascension offering. And that son of the herd, that bull, that, that cow, if you will, had to be cut and then burnt, right? The flaming sword, cut and burnt. Christ has therefore opened the way to the garden by passing through the sword and the flame, the death of the cross. If you've ever wondered what our logo is as a church, it's on the slide, Christ is the door. That's supposed to be an archway, a doorway, and you cannot gain entrance into his flock unless you come by him. How did Christ do this? He opened up the way by passing through sword and flame, so to speak, the death of a cross. It's not not a, a coincidence that a cross looks like a sword. God set it up that way. Just as he leads his people out, he tasted death for every man. He experienced that death which allowed the next generation to enter the promised land. He himself has made atonement, and he opened up, as Hebrews tells us, a new and living way by which we may draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith. This is what the book of Hebrews is telling us about Christ. David knows that he will gain entry because he knows that he will be allowed to gain entry. David only gains entry if Christ first enters and then brings him with him. Christ goes first and then brings his people along. The point is this, if you are one who would have your soul restored, would you have your soul restored? Then come to Christ. Come to Christ and live. Enter by the narrow door. Jesus says the door which leads to life, it's narrow. You have to go low. You have to repent of sin. You have to humble yourself, and you will then be able to enter. Are you one of Christ's sheep? If you're one of Christ's sheep, do not resist his feeding and rest. Christ has a pattern of feeding daily. He has a pattern of rest Daily. These are spiritual, healthy marks for Christians. They receive God's word. They receive God's grace. They find rest for their souls. And then finally, are you hearing Christ's voice? Give ear to the word of God. We've felt for a while as a church that we're in a kind of a season of renewal and refreshing. And the the chief thing that I believe God is wanting to restore to us as a people is to give ear to the word of God, to eat daily in the green pastures of the scriptures, that God would open up to us true food, true drink. So even as we come to the table, Father, we pray that you would allow us by grace to truly feast with Christ. Lord, we thank you for your death in our place. We thank you, God, that you would give to us uh, these wonderful gifts and promises. And we pray that you would allow us by your spirit to fully and truly repent that we would be able to commune with you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.